You're listening to Pastor Ryan Couch at Calvary Chapel of Crook County as he teaches through the book of Judges. If you have your Bibles with you, let's join Pastor Ryan now. If you've got your Bible, uh, Judges chapter 17 tonight. 17 through 21, we're going to finish the book. As we've said uh, from the very beginning of our study here in Judges, the last verse of this book really sums up the entire book. And we're going to see it actually throughout this section we're in tonight. But if you turn and look at 2125, in those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Uh, today we call that existentialism, basically that um, you know you that you create what is right in your own mind, that you create what is. Uh, right for you. There's no absolute truth. The only absolute is that there are no absolutes and that um, you just do what's right for you. Burger King, right? D- have it your way. That's, that's the American slogan. Just whatever you want. What's right for you? What makes you feel good? And no one can tell you what to do. Question authority question anybody that would get in the way of what's right in your own eyes and you create what is right. And that is absolutely the overriding theme of the history of Israel at this time. They had abandoned their king, which was supposed to be God, and they did what was right in their own eyes. And so chapter 17, Stuart uh, taught us 16, 15, 16, uh, last week, or 13, 14, 15, whatever it was, Life of Samson, uh, heard it went well, and Samson's a, a great sort of lead-in to, uh, to our section tonight, because Samson basically did what was right in his own eyes. Now, there was a man from the mountains of Ephraim whose name was Micah, and he said to his mother, the 1,100 shekels of silver that were taken from you and on which you put a curse, even saying it in my ears, here is the silver with me. I took it. So Micah admits to his mother that he stole 1,100 shekels of silver from her. And his mother said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my son. And so she pronounces a blessing on him because he was honest. So when he had returned the 1,100 shekels of silver to his mother, his mother said, I had wholly dedicated the silver from my hand to the Lord for my son to make a carved image and a molded image. Now, therefore, I will return it to you. Thus he returned the silver to his mother. Then his mother took 200 shekels of silver and gave them to the silversmith, and he made it into a carved image and a molded image, and they were in the house of Micah. And so... Micah's mom is missing this 1,100 shekels of silver. She pronounces a curse. Then her son announces that he stole it. So then she blesses him. So in one moment, she's cursing the guy that stole it. And the next, she's blessing him. 1,100 shekels of silver would have been the equivalent of about three to five million dollars today. Because we will find out later in this section that 10 shekels of silver was a year's wage. And so if you do the math on an average yearly wage today, this is about three to five million dollars that he's stolen from his mother. He returns it. So she makes him this image, a molded and carved image, probably something that would represent the true and living God. But we know that the second commandment says, 
not to make any graven image. And so even though this lady's motives were right, in that she wanted her son to worship the Lord, and it sounds like he kind of you know, was a bit rebellious, and so maybe she's concerned about him, so she wants to help him to worship God, and yet she goes about it in the wrong way. And, and how often does that happen, that as parents, we so desperately want our kids to do the right thing, but we go about it in the wrong way? Um, just a sec. Stuart, is there a reason why we only have one light on? It's really tripping me out. Um, can we get either none or both? Um, and so it, it's real easy to to as parents, to want our kids to do the right thing and yet go about it in the absolute wrong way. And, and that's what she does here. I'm sure her motives are right. I'm sure that she wanted the best for her kid, but she does it completely wrong. And then Micah takes this, this image and he takes it to the next level. He makes himself a shrine, which is basically like a temple. And then he makes himself an ephod. You remember the priests wore an ephod that would represent each of the tribes of Israel and they would carry them on their heart. And he makes himself household idols so that everybody can have their own little gods in their house and make it real convenient to have this religious experience. And then he consecrates one of his sons to be his priest. And so it's like Micah wants to create his own religious system. Whatever was right in his eyes. It was right in his mom's eyes to make a graven image, even though the second commandment said not to do it. It was right in his eyes to duplicate what was set up by God to, to be the proper order of worship where there was a priesthood and there was a temple. And Micah says, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this my own way. I'm going to have my own temple and my own ephod and my own priest. And he's totally out to lunch with what he's doing here. And it says in verse 6, in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so here we see it again. And what it means that there was no king is it wants us to understand that God was supposed to be their king. God never intended for Israel to be a monarchy. That would come later as they begged and pleaded with God and finally he gives them Saul. But God wanted their nation to be built on a theocracy where he was their king. And see... Because he wasn't their king and because he wasn't in control and he wasn't preeminent, then they did what was right in their own eyes. And it's exactly what we see today, even in the church, is that Jesus isn't preeminent. He isn't the king. He isn't the very center of even a Christian's life. And so we do what's right in our own eyes. We make our own decisions and and often we'll shroud that in religious sort of speech. We're really good at that, at saying, well, you know, this is, this is what I feel that God is calling me to do. Or I prayed about it and I have a good feeling about it. Really? Well, the Bible strictly prohibits what you're doing. Don't tell me that you prayed about whether or not you should live with your, your boyfriend or girlfriend. And people have said that. Well, you know, I prayed about it and the Lord just showed me I didn't need to pay my taxes. Well, my goodness, the Bible says that you need to. So where are you coming up with this? You know, I have a good feeling. Well, that sounds like Mormonism. That's what they say. Oh, I had a burning in my bosom. We can't, it's nothing about a good feeling. We can't go by our emotions. We go by the word of God. And if God's word says that you need to do something or that you shouldn't do something, we can't then turn around and say, well, I prayed about it or I did this. Or a friend of mine who's a Christian told me it's okay and act as if we're now 
justifying our sin with religious kinds of excuses. In verse 7, Now there was a young man from Bethlehem in Judah of the family of Judah. He was a Levite, and he was staying there. The man departed from the city of Bethlehem in Judah to stay wherever he could find a place. Then he came to the mountains of Ephraim, to the house of Micah, as he journeyed. And so there's this Levite who's kind of like this itinerant priest. He just goes around and whoever he can stay with and and mooch off of, apparently, he becomes like their priest for hire. Now, if you understand how the Levitical system worked, every Levite was given to service in the temple. Every Levite male, their life would be dedicated to the service of, of the Lord to the service of the temple. But not every Levite was a priest. If you were of the, the family of Aaron, then you were a priest. So you would be a Levite of the family of Aaron. They were the priests. If you were a Levite from some other family, then you would be a servant in the temple. You would take care of all of the priest's needs and all of that kind of work that went along with that. Be kind of like an assistant priest. Well, th- the text doesn't tell us this, but this is what I think. I think this Levite here wasn't of the family of Aaron, but I think he really wanted to be a priest. And so he thought, like everybody else, I'll do what's right in my own eyes. I'll go around and and just be like this priest for hire in these areas that don't have a a priest and don't have a a place of worship. Because you remember there were Levitical cities where the, the priests would be, remember we learned about that in Joshua, and they would go to those places and they were strategically placed throughout the land and that's where the places of worship would be. But I think this guy thought, you know what, I'm going to do my own thing and I'm going to be this traveling priest for hire. So he ends up at Micah's house. We already know Micah's totally whacked. He's got this temple, you know, in his house and idols and he's got his own priest of who's his son and So now this priest, who's actually a Levite, shows up. And Micah said to him, where do you come from? So he said, I am a Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, and I am on my way to find a place to stay. And Micah said to him, dwell with me and be a father and a priest to me, and I will give you 10 shekels of silver per year. So here's where we kind of get this idea that that was about a year's wage. A suit of clothes and your sustenance. So the Levite went in. So, hey, he's got... A good salary, he's got clothes, he's got lodging, he's got food. He's like, I'm in. The Levite was content to dwell with the man, and the young man became like one of his sons. So Micah consecrated the Levite, which he wasn't authorized or qualified to do. And the young man became his priest and lived in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, now I know that the Lord will be good to me since I have a Levite as a priest. Is that true? The Lord's going to be good to him because he's got this Levite living with him who's supposedly now his personal priest. And this is the kind of thing that happens when we get our eyes off of the Lord and we do what's right in our own eyes. And it's the kind of thing where people think, well, I go to church so God's going to bless me. Or I own a Bible. Or people, you know, I read a Bible. I read my Bible so God's got to bless me. It goes beyond that. It's not just reading the Bible, and so now God's obligated to bless you. You can read and worship and go to church, and yet if your life's in opposition to the Lord, you're not going to be blessed. And here we find Micah completely opposed to God, doing what's right in his own eyes, but thinking, hey, I'm having this religious experience, and so God's going to bless me, and it's totally wrong. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and in those days, the tribe of the Danites was seeking an inheritance for itself to dwell in. Now, I want you to think about that. 
the Danites were seeking a place to dwell in. Does that sound odd to you? Because didn't God specifically tell them where they were to dwell? And didn't God say, this is your area, Dan. This is your area, Ephraim. This is your area, Benjamin, and so on and so forth. But here are the Danites, and they're thinking, you know what? We don't really like where we're at, because the area that God gave them meant that they had to work, and that they had to go and purge out the enemies, and they had to suffer loss, and they didn't want to deal with that. So now they're seeking a place to dwell that's easy. And so the children of Dan sent five men of their family from their territory, men of valor from Zorah and Eshtol, to spy out the land and search it. They said to them, go, search the land. So they went to the mountains of Ephraim. So apparently the mountains of Ephraim are where all the whacked out religious people want to live. And they went to the house of Micah and lodged there. So they end up at this guy's house, these five men that were sent out from the tribe of Dan to to find an easier existence. And while they were at the house of Micah, they recognized the voice of the young Levite. Now, whether they knew him or they just recognized that he had the accent of a Levite, doesn't tell us. They turned aside and said to him, who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? What do you have here? And he said to them, thus and so Micah did for me. He has hired me and I have become his priest. So they said to him, please inquire of God that we may know whether the journey on which we go will be prosperous. And so see how this perpetuates. So now these guys who are out of the will of God, because they already have a a set area that they're supposed to live. There was no ambiguity. Dan, you're to live here. This is your area. Go and possess it. Okay, Lord, thanks. Oh, but we're going to go and we're going to find our own land. Oh, and here's this, you know, supposed priest who's really a hireling. Hey, could you pray and ask the Lord if, um, if this journey that we're on is going to be prosperous? And so the priest said to them, go in peace. The presence of the Lord be with you on your way. The presence of the Lord isn't with them. The, this, this fake priest has no right to be saying this to them. What he should have said to them is, look, God has given you his will. Now go do it. And this same thing happens today as people, leaders in the church and, and Christians don't have enough backbone and enough courage and enough love for people really to tell people what's up and to be willing to say, you know what, you're out of the will of God. And so God isn't going to bless you. You don't need to pray about whether or not you should buy that car or paint your house blue or, you know, go to that college or go on that trip. You don't need to pray about that. You need to quit doing this thing that God has already made very clear to you that you shouldn't be doing. Or you need to start doing this thing that God has already made clear that you need to be doing. His moral will, the general will of God that's the same for all of us. If we're out of that, then there's no way that we can know his specific will. But that's what we want to know, isn't it? Lord, should I paint my house blue? God, should I go on that trip? God, should I buy that car? Should I marry so-and-so? Should I go to this or that college? And God's saying, you know what? I don't really care what color you paint your house or if you buy a Mazda or a Chevy or I really don't care. What I care about is that you do the things that I've already laid out for you. And that's what we find these guys doing. Hey, Lord, forget you in terms of your general will that you already told us. We're going to do our own thing. Oh, and by the way, are you going to bless us on this journey? And this priest who doesn't have the courage who's totally out of the will of God himself, says, yeah, go your way, be blessed. And so you see how it's 
how it happens. So the five men departed and went, and went to Laish. And they saw the people who were there, how they dwelt safely in the manner of the Sidonians, quiet and secure. And there were no rulers in the land who might put them to shame for anything. They were far from the Sidonians and they had no ties with anyone. So they find this, this area where there's some people living and they don't have any protection and they don't have much of a military. And so they think, you know what? This is easy pickings. We'll take them out and this will be our land. And that's what they want. They want ease. They wanted convenience. And that's not what God has set up for us as Christians. Man, someday we're going to be home with the Lord and we're going to have rest. We're going to be free from sin. We're not going to have ailments anymore. We're not going to have financial worries. But right now, God has us in a place where very often we're, we're struggling. We're very often we're in trials. We're very often we're in situations where we have no other recourse but to absolutely trust him. And that's where he wants us to be. But you know what we want to do? We want to find easier pasture. We, we want to find the comfort in the place where every detail is lined out for us and where we don't have to trust the Lord, where everything just is laid out in front of us. And so we want to walk away from the difficulty. We want to quit and give up like the Danites are doing here. Then the spies came back to their brethren at Zorah and Eshtol, and their brethren said to them, What is your report? So they said, Arise, let us go up against them, for we have seen the land, and indeed it is very good. Would you do nothing? Do not hesitate to go and enter to possess the land. So they, they come back and they say, Man, this is awesome. These people have no military, no protection. We'll wipe them out. When you go, you will come to a secure people in a large land. For God has given it into your hands, a place where there is no lack of anything that is on the earth. And 600 men of the family of the Danites went from there, from Zorah and Eshtol, armed with weapons of war. Why they couldn't have put this together in their own land that God had set aside for them, I have no idea. And do you ever notice that? How so often we'll put effort and diligence and perseverance into something that was our own idea, but the things that God wants for us, we won't put that same effort into. It's exactly what they're doing here. They're, they're putting together their army and they're going to go. And, and yet if they had put this kind of effort into the area that God had given them, it would have been a piece of cake because God said, I'm going to give you the land. God told them that they would just go in and that he would give it over to them. But they had to put some effort into it. They had to, to go and trust the Lord. And whatever God's calling you to do, he will enable you to do it. But when you launch out into your flesh then you're using your own resources and you're bound for failure. Whatever God has asked you to do, whatever God is calling you to do, he will enable you to do it. And even if it seems difficult and ridiculous and impossible, know that his callings are his enablings. They went up and encamped in Kirjath, Jerim, and Judah. Therefore, they call that place Dan to this day. And there it is, west of Kirjath, Jerim. And, and Dan, the city of Dan, is in the northernmost part of Israel, this area that they end up possessing. And that's why sometimes scripturally you'll, you'll read Israel referred to as from Dan to Beersheba, Dan to the north, Beersheba to the south. And that's the, you know, it would, it would kind of be like from Portland to Medford. And that's, that's the idea. And they passed from there to the mountains of Ephraim and came to the house of Micah. 
Then the five men who had gone to spy out the country of Laish answered and said to their brethren, Do you know that there are in these houses an ephod, household idols, a carved image, and a molded image? Now therefore consider what you should do. So they turned aside there and came to the house of the young Levite man, to the house of Micah, and greeted him. The 600 men armed with the weapons of war who were of the children of Dan stood by the entrance of the gate. And so here's these five guys that had spent the night the night before. Now they've got 600 men who are armed to the teeth. Knock, they knock on the door. Hey, how you doing? It would have been quite the scene. And the five men who had gone out to spy out the land went up. Entering there, they took the carved image, the ephod, the household idols, and the molded image. The priest stood at the entrance of the gate with the 600 men of war who were armed with weapons of war. And when these, when these men went into Micah's house and took the carved image, the ephod, and the idols, the priest said to them, what are you doing? And they said to him, be quiet, put your hand over your mouth, which is a threat. Basically, they were saying either shut up or die and come with us. Be a father and a priest to us. Is it better for you to be a priest to the household of one man or that you be a priest to a tribe and a family in Israel? So the priest's heart was glad. This guy was a total hireling. He, he had no loyalty to Micah. As soon as he had a better opportunity, he's gone. Because that's what he wanted from the very beginning was notoriety, fame. If my assertion is correct... He wasn't a priest, but he always wanted to be a priest. And so here's his opportunity, not only to be a priest of a family, but to be a priest of an entire tribe, the entire tribe of Dan. So his heart was glad. And he took the ephod, the household idols, and the carved image, and took his place among the people. Then they turned and departed and put the little ones, the livestock, and the goods in front of them. And when, and when they were a good way from the house of Micah, the men who were in the houses near Micah's, gathered together and overtook the children of Dan. And they called out to the children of Dan. So they turned around and said to Micah, What ails you that you have gathered such a company? So he said, You have taken away my gods, which I made, and the priest, and you have gone away. Now what more do I have? How can you say to me, What ails you? And the children of Dan said to him, Do not let your voice be heard among us, lest angry men fall upon you and you lose your life with the lives of your household. Then the children of Dan went their way, and when Micah saw that they were too strong for him, he turned and went back to his house. And so everything that Micah always wanted in life, riches and to be recognized of men, to, to have his own religious system, to do what was right in his own eyes, all of these things are stripped from him. He has none of it. His little religious system that he set up is taken. His riches are gone. His priest is gone. And that's what happens when you do what's right in your own eyes, is that it always leads to disappointment and to devastation. And that's what happens with Micah. So they took the things Micah had made and the priests who had belonged to him and went to Laish, to a people quiet and secure, and they struck them with the edge of the sword and burned the city with fire. These people, these Sidonians, were not people that God had asked them to purge from the land. And so not only are they not inhabiting the land and the portion of the land that God had called them to, but now they're killing innocent people that God didn't ask them to, do, to kill. And so it's just perpetuating the destruction and the devastation. And there was no deliverer because it was far from Sidon, as we talked about. They, they were far away, the, this little group of people. They had no ties with anyone. And it was in the valley that belongs to Beth Rahab, 
So they rebuilt the city and dwelt there. And they called the name of the city Dan. After the name of Dan, their father was born to Israel. However, the name of the city formerly was Laish. Then the children of Dan set up for themselves the carved image. And Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Manasseh, and his sons were priests to the tribe of Dan until the day of captivity of the land. So they set up for themselves Micah's carved image, which he made all the time that the house of God was in Shiloh. And so this was the first public acceptance of idolatry in Israel. Before it was private, like in Micah's house, but now it's public and it's accepted and it's part of their religious system. And it would be their downfall. Chapter 19, it came to pass in those days that there was no king in Israel. And so there it is again. And that there was a certain Levite staying in the remote mountains of Ephraim. And so I don't know what it is about these mountains of Ephraim, but there's a problem there. And he took for himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. But his concubine played the harlot against him and went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah and was there four whole months. Now, concubines were basically extra wives and they were recognized as a wife and yet they didn't have any of the privileges of a wife. They, they wouldn't be given any kind of benefits. And it was accepted in that culture. And we see many men of God like Abraham and Solomon and, and many, many others who, who had concubines and had multiple wives. And, and in fact, it was even something that was allowed in uh, the law. And yet, it was only that because it was so ingrained in their culture that God just sort of made allowances for it. But it was never set up that way. And we see it from the very beginning in Genesis that it was set up that it was to be one man and one woman. But because of the hardness of their heart and because it was so ingrained in their culture, God made allowances for it. And, and God wanted to protect these women. And so it became sort of uh, something that, like slavery in the first century, oftentimes people will say, well, man, Paul writes about how to treat a slave and how slave owners ought to act. And so God must have been okay with slavery. No, it was just so ingrained in the culture and in the way they did things that God had to set up allowances and boundaries and, and laws and rules so that things wouldn't be chaos. But it was never God's prescribed order. And so this guy's got a concubine. And this concubine is loose and she plays the harlot with him, which means she went out and and, and slept with a bunch of other men. And she ends up at her father's house. And so verse 3, her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her and bring her back. And so he starts out right. He wants to speak kindly to her and show compassion to her. And, and this really is how things that, that go wrong in marriage should be handled. And just because Jesus said that if there is adultery in marriage that divorce is allowable doesn't mean that that's what God would have. So often Christians will say, well, you know, this is my out. And that's never God's will. I think his will would be to forgive and to restore and, and to deal kindly as this, this man, this Levite, is going to deal with his concubine. So he, he goes to bring her back and having his servant and a couple donkeys with him, she brought him into her father's house. So she invites him there and when the father of the young woman saw him, he was glad to meet him. And now the father-in-law detains him 
And he stayed with him three days. So they ate and drank and lodged there. It came to pass on the fourth day that he wanted to leave. And the father-in-law compels him to stay the fourth day. And then, in fact, he compels him to stay the fifth day. In verse 9, when the man stood to depart, he and his concubine and his servant, his father-in-law, the young woman's father, said to him, Look, the day is now drawing toward evening. Please spend the night. Day is coming to an end. Lodge here. Tomorrow go on your way. However, the man was not willing to spend the night. So finally, on this fifth day, he, he leaves. And he comes to what was called Jabus at that time. It's Jerusalem now. It was an area that was inhabited by the Jebusites. And he had two saddle donkeys and his concubine with him. And as they drew near to Jabus, verse 11, the day was far spent. And the servant said to his master, so one of the, the servants of this Levite says to his master, come, please, let us turn aside into this city, city of the Jebusites, and lodge there. But his master said to him, we're not going to turn aside here. This is a city of foreigners. We're children of Israel. We'll not go there. We'll go to Gibeah. So he said to his servant, come, let us draw near to one of these places and spend the night in Gibeah or in Ramah. And so he didn't want to go to Jabus because it was foreign people and they weren't the, the, the people of Israel. Now, we're going to see that it ended up actually being more dangerous for him to go to a place where they supposedly worshipped the same God and go to a place where they were his brethren. And I think it brings up an interesting point because sometimes, and it's why I hate like the Christian yellow pages and Christian newspapers and Christian bulletin boards and, and, and where we want to sort of insulate and isolate ourselves where we only deal with Christians. And the church sometimes gets into that mindset where we become a bubble and we only hire Christian contractors and Christian mechanics and we go to Christian restaurants and coffee shops and my accountant's a Christian and my insurance guy's a Christian. And, and I don't know that when I go out to find those kinds of services that that's the first thing on my mind. You know what I want when I'm thinking about a mechanic? Somebody that's going to fix my car. Somebody that's going to fix my car. Because oftentimes, the Christian mechanic, that we want to isolate and insulate ourselves from the worldly mechanic, the Christian mechanic ends up not doing a very good job and shafting us and then saying something like, well, brother, you know, it's all good. Now, I'm not saying there aren't good Christian mechanics and good Christian accountants and all of the rest, but I don't think we should be insulating and isolating ourselves like that. If we have people in the church that do those things, awesome. But how cool is it when we get to, to rub shoulders with people out in the, in the world and, and to maybe hire them to do something and minister to them? And if we're, we're never dealing with anybody but Christians, we don't get to do that. So I don't think God intended it to be that way. And know this, you guys, just because the carpet cleaner has a fish on his van doesn't mean he's a Christian, nor does it mean he's going to do a good job. Oftentimes, these business owners will put a fish in their Yellow Page ad because they know the non-Christian could care less about the fish, but they know that Christians will be attracted to it. And so it's sort of a win-win deal. So I kind of see that happening here with this guy, and then it, it's, it totally backfires on him. Because as they approach this city, the sun goes down, they go into Gibeah, and they turn aside there into this open square. And in this culture, what you would do if you were a, travel, a traveler and you didn't have a place to stay is you would sit in the open square and you would wait for somebody to invite you into their home. 
And if no one invited you into their home, it was a disgrace for that city. Hospitality was a big part of their culture. And so here would be this guy and his servants and his camels and his family. And you'd walk by and you'd go, hey, you don't have a place to stay? No. Hey, come home with me. And you would feed them and you would water the camels and you would take care of them. Culturally, what was acceptable was for three to five days and you would protect them. And it was a disgrace to do anything less than that. So here he is in a city of his own people. He's sitting in the open square and no one would take them into his house to spend the night. Now, I think there's some great application here for us as children of God, as people of God, which these people were supposed to be, is that we ought to be people who are hospitable, that we're willing to take people into our home, that we're willing to make sacrifices, that we're willing to make a meal, that we're willing to, to, to help people. And I think it's a shame and it's a disgrace on the church when we're not doing that, when we're not hospitable. And I think it's our tendency to, to always think, well, there's somebody else that will do it. You ever think that way? Like, well, somebody else will, will do that. You, you hear an announcement, hey, we need help with this, or somebody needs a place to stay, or we need meals cooked, and you think, man, I'm really busy, and I don't have time, and somebody else will do it. You know what, though? Everybody says that, and so then it doesn't happen. Now, very often in, in our church, things are taken care of, and, and, and people are very hospitable. But you know what the, is really true, and it's true in any church, and it's certainly true here? It's the same people. It's the same person that says, I'll do it. I'll, I'll have those people over. I'll make a meal. I'll, I'll help out on Saturday. I'll, I'll, I'll move those people. It's always the same people. And what I'd love to see is more of us being willing to make sacrifices. And, because everybody's busy. Everybody's tired. And, and so if we all have those excuses, then it's, it's the same people doing it time and time again. And it is a shame. As people of God, we should be hospitable and helpful and have servants' hearts. And so verse 16, just then an old man came in from his work in the field at evening, who also was from the mountains of Ephraim. So he's from the same area as this Levite. And he was staying in Gibeah, whereas the men of the place were Benjamites. And when he raised his eyes, he saw the traveler in the open square. And the old man said, where are you going? Where do you come from? And they told him, and he said, come on over to my house. I'll feed your donkeys. I'll give you bread and wine, and I'll take care of you. And the old man said, peace be with you. However, let all your needs be my responsibility. Only do not spend the night in the open square. So he brought him into his house and, and took care of him, washed his feet and everything else. And as they were enjoying themselves, suddenly certain men of the city, perverted men, surrounded the house and beat on the door. They spoke to the master of the house, the old man, saying, Bring out the man who came to your house, that we may know him carnally. And I don't think we need to get into what's going on here, but you, if you think you know. And this is the same thing that happened at Lot's house in Sodom. And so the, the Israelites had so digressed in their morals and in doing what was right in their own eyes that they were no better than Sodom and Gomorrah. And that's what's happening here. This guy goes into the house. He's a stranger. They don't know him. Hey, we want to know this guy carnally. We want to do what's right in our own eyes. But the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, No, my brethren, I beg you, do not act so wickedly. Seeing this man has come into my house, do not commit this outrage. And so here's the hospitality. You would protect the visitor. No way am I going to allow this to happen. But here's my virgin daughter. And here's the man's concubine, the, guy, the, the concubine that he went to get. 
Let me bring them out now, humble them, and do with them as you please. But to this man, do not do such a vile thing. And so it's subjective morality. This guy doesn't have the courage to stand up to his brethren. So he says, look, I'm protecting my guest. There's no way I'm going to let you do that to him. But you can have my virgin daughter, who in that culture, if she's a virgin, she's probably like 12. You can have my virgin daughter and you can have his concubine. I mean, she's a loose woman anyway. This Levite doesn't say anything. He doesn't object to this at all. But when the men would not heed him, the man took his concubine, brought her out to them, and they knew her and abused her all night until morning. And when the day began to break, they let her go. So they raped her all night long. Then the woman came as the day was dawning, fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was till it was light. When her master arose in the morning, he opened the door of the house, went out to go his way. There was his concubine fallen at the door. He says to her, get up, let us be going. So all of a sudden, this kindness and compassion is gone. So I don't know what happened. Maybe he got there to her dad's house and he saw that she had just been cheating on him all over the place. And and maybe he just totally just said, forget her in his mind. And, and maybe he developed bitterness and hatred for her. But something has changed. He despises her now. Get up, let us be going. But there was no answer. So the man lifted her onto the donkey and the man got up and went to his place. And when he entered his house, he took a knife, laid hold of his concubine and divided her into 12 pieces, limb by limb, and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. And so it was that all who saw it said, no such deed has been done or seen from the day that the children of Israel came up from the land. So he hacks her in pieces, sends her out to the 12 tribes because he's indignant about this rape and about the way that he was treated there in Gibeah, which was an Israelite city, tribe of Benjamin. Too bad that his righteous indignation didn't translate in him standing up that night and saying, look, we're not going to tolerate this. But again, it's subjective morality. Two more chapters. In chapter 20, we see Israel's war with the Benjamites. And basically what happens here is because of this situation that happened with this man's concubine. And he sent out all her body parts to the 12 tribes. They received the body part. It's quite a statement. They're all outraged against the Benjamites. And so they go to war against the Benjamites. And basically they eradicate them almost to the point of extinction. Then after they've completely eradicated them, which it wasn't an easy task. They, they were initially losing which was crazy because they were they so outnumbered the Benjamites. You got to remember there's 12 tribes. So you have 11 tribes against one. You think you could pretty easily defeat them. Well, they get beaten for two straight days. And then finally, they're able to defeat them with the same tactics that Joshua used with Ai, where they led the people out. And then as the, the city is cleared of all the men, then they, they ambushed them. And they eradicated this tribe where there were only... 400 men left. So then they feel bad because they've killed almost the entire tribe. There's not even enough women to give them as wives, but they've made a vow that they will not give their wives to the tribe of Benjamin because of what they did and because of their unwillingness to do anything about it. So they said, look, we're going to kill them and we're not going to give our wives to them to marry. So they kill all the women. There's 400 men left. And now they say, Lord, what happened? What a tragedy that we're going to be 11 tribes instead of 12. 
Because just as they've been doing the entire time, they took things into their own hands and they did what was right in their own eyes. They didn't pray about it. They didn't seek the Lord. They just went out as vigilantes and just trashed this tribe. Now they regret it. So then they have to backpedal and they find 400 wives of of this other group that didn't come to help them and they justified it saying, look, they didn't come to help us so we'll give them their women because they didn't help anyway and that won't be going against the vow. And then they had them ambush some other ladies and capture them and kidnap them so that the tribe of Benjamin wouldn't be extinct. And this is what you have to do when you launch out into your flesh. You have to do all kinds of weird stuff to make things work. And I've been there. I've been there where I am just slapping stuff together and piecing things together and justifying it in my mind and and all the while knowing, Lord, this is not from you, but things just went downhill so fast. And and that's what happens. I'll tell you guys a quick story. Um, And that basically sums up the rest of the book. Uh, And and that's what went on. But about 10 years ago, um, we before Andrew and I had kids and we had a little extra money, I used to hunt out of state. Now we have no money and we don't do that anymore. But I hunted in uh, Washington one year and it was with my dad and my brother-in-law and a couple of Andrea's uncles and a friend of theirs and we hunt white-tailed deer. And my dad only has like a couple days to, to hunt. And so we made this agreement that if I found a deer, I would shoot it and he would tag it which I knew wasn't right, but I justified it in my mind because he already bought a tag and I'm out of state and I paid tons of money to hunt, you know, and justified it. So sure enough, the second day I see a deer on private property, no less. There's a big sign right there that says no trespassing. There's a fence. We're on a road. I tell my dad to stop. I get out, boom, just roll it. Now we have to jump this fence. We I don't know where this strength came from, but when you are in the wrong and you're just doing crazy stuff, all of a sudden my adrenaline's just pumping. We throw this deer over the fence like it's just nothing, right? We throw it in the back. We, we go to public land. We gut it out so that if anybody stops, we oh, we shot it right here, you know? My dad tags it. So then that night we go out to hunt and we come back and we, within this whole area, we're the only people that have killed anything. So of course the game warden is noticing us. So he's got the road blocked and he's got his lights on. It's the middle of night. It's like eight, nine o'clock at night. And he wants to, to talk to us. You guys, the one, well, first he talks to the, the truck ahead of us, which is Andrea's uncles and a few other people. And in the, Andrea's uncle says, answers the question, who killed the deer by saying my little nephew, which he was referring to me. Cause at that time I'm like 20. My little nephew. So now the game warden comes back. He says, hey, um, who killed the deer that's hanging over there in your camp? Well, my dad tagged it. So my dad says, I did. He said, well, that's interesting because you're older than the guy in the truck ahead. And he referred to you as his little nephew. Oh, uh, that's what he calls me. Right? That's, that's, yeah, that's what he calls me. And I am like sweating because I'm thinking we're going to jail right over this stupid little deer and now we're lying to the cops we're making up this story and he says he kind of sat there for like a couple minutes hoping that we would say something he's like i know something's up i don't know what it is 
but I'm going to find out. So, you know, that night we packed up everything. We're out of there. I mean, we're just like, we're not messing around, right? This guy's going to be back tomorrow. And so that night as we're sitting around the fire, we left the next morning. All the guys are giving me a hard time. And they're backslidden Christians. They're non-Christians. You know, my dad really wasn't walking with the Lord. And I just felt horrible. Here I am. I'm an assistant pastor. I'm a Bible college graduate. They all know that someday I want to plant a church. And, I, and the Lord is just hammering me. And just like, see, Ryan, this is what happens when you, when you take things into your own hands. And now you've lied. You've ruined your witness. You've trespassed all for a stupid deer. And I told myself, I said, I'll never do that again. I never have. I've never trespassed ever again. I've never done anything near poaching at all. It was the lesson that I needed. But it was such a time where I, I realized how quickly things can escalate. And, and it's just out of control. And one lie turns into another lie and one sin into another sin. And that's exactly what was happening in, in the lives of the children of Israel at that time. They, they were doing what was right in their own eyes. And it was absolute disaster. Let's stand and pray together. Father, we thank you for this time in your word, Lord. And I, I just pray that, that even though we weren't able to read it all, that, that we could really just capture the essence of this book, this book of Judges where there was no king, Lord. You weren't the king. You weren't sinner in their lives. And everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And God, it's so easy for any one of us here to, in a moment, ruin our testimony, ruin our witness, Lord, with a, with a little compromise, with a little sin. And, and, and it just escalates and it snowballs. And God, I pray that you would protect us. God, I pray that we would heed the voice of your spirit. God, I pray that we would do what's right in your eyes. And that we wouldn't justify it with religious speech. But that, God, we would heed your voice. And obey you. And Lord, again, all these things that are going on and the, all this stuff that is going to need to be fixed here and some of the issues at the fireworks stand and different stuff. God, we just give that to you and we trust you, Lord. We know that you've got everything under control. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to Pastor Ryan Couch of Calvary Chapel, Crook County. For more information, you can write to us at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon, 97754. Thanks for listening, and God bless.